Good morning, Hallmark. My name is Dave Winger. It's my privilege to serve here as the associate pastor, and it's also my privilege to preach to you today. And because it's back to school Sunday, and all the kids and the teachers are getting ready to go, I thought to myself, why should they get to have all the fun? I think we all should go back to school. So everybody grab your textbooks. Today, I'm going to give you a lecture. Now, we are going to study something that is the greatest topic in the world. You know, everybody goes back to school, they're going to study biology, they're going to study genealogy. You know, anything that has ology, it's the study of, so the study of life, the study of rocks. Why isn't math called mathology or English Englishology? I don't know, let's be consistent, that's all I'm saying. But today, we're going to go back to school and we're going to study our great salvation. And if you were in school and you took this course, the title of the course would be Soteriology. I know you're blessed by that, but you will not be tested at the end of the message today. So just breathe a sigh of relief. But I do know this. I'm only 47 years old, but I know that all of us are tested in life. Amen? 2020 has been an incredible test for all of us for a variety of different reasons. And when I'm tested in life, the most encouraging passage of Scripture that I find is Romans 8, 28 through 39. So open your textbooks today. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at Professor Paul's explanation of our great salvation. In this passage of Scripture, he shares with us five aspects of the great salvation that we enjoy. Now, as I share the text with you this morning, I'll be quoting from the ESV version, so if it's a little different, um, bear with me, but it's the one that I've memorized and, and revisit all the time. And I'm just going to start by, by going through verse 28 through 30, and then we're going to save verses 31 through 39 for the end, because that's what Paul does. It's Paul's application to this great lesson about our great salvation. So Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In the first few verses here, we're going to see four aspects of our great salvation, and then Paul is going to give us the fifth one in verses 31 through 39. And the first aspect that we see is a predetermined plan. Now, in your notes today, I'm going to give you some theological vocabulary words, because I know that if I didn't, you would ask me for them after, and so I, I figured I'd just give them to you up front, so you don't hassle me after the service, okay? But the predetermined plan here that we see in verse 29 is the word predestination. Okay, now notice I skipped verse 28. I'm not skipping it all together. We're just going to start in verse 29 because 28 is the, the most famous verse of this passage. It's the one that you've memorized probably. It's the one that you quote all the time. But it's such a bold claim. It says, and we know certain things, that all things work together for good. That's a pretty big statement. And, and how can we know that? Well, it's supported by verses 29 and 30. So let's start with the foundation and then we'll go back and look at verse 28. 
So a predetermined plan. It says, and those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I want to be honest with you this morning. There's a couple terms in Christianity that have caused tension in Christianity for over 400 years. My goal this morning is not to resolve that tension. I'm not going to fix the problem. I'm not going to share what this side believes. I'm not going to share what this side believes. I'm simply going to preach what the text of the scripture says. Is that okay this morning? I'm just going to share what, what's, what's there in the Bible. Because, you know, I, my goal is not for us to wrestle with this so much as it is to rest in this. So we're going to rest in this today. So let's talk about those words. Foreknowledge, predestination, election. Now, I didn't have to tell you that election creates tension. I mean, you know, November 3rd's coming up. And honestly, I can't wait until it's over because some of you are crazy right now. And so I cannot wait for the election to be over. But this is a different kind of election. Let me start with foreknowledge. You know, when you hear the word foreknowledge, you think it might be a golfing term. I'm not a golfer, so bear with me in this description. But you know when guys, they tee off and they hit the ball and they, they shout a warning down course. They go, four! Now, I was told by a golfer who is a um, much more you know, learned golfer than I am, that people don't do that anymore. They, they don't really shout for because they don't want to identify a bad shot. If they shank it or they hook it, they don't want anybody to know that it was them, and so they don't say that anymore. But bear with me. Foreknowledge would be like God is on the golf course. Somebody tees off, they shout for and God says, I knew they were going to do that. But it's more than that. It's more than just having knowledge before. You see, it would be like God saying, that guy that just drove the ball, I created him. I designed him. In fact, I knew when he would come to this course. And this course, you like it? I designed it myself. I knew the day, the time that he would come. I knew the club he would select. I knew the ball and the tee that he would grab. I knew that he would tee off at the girl's tee instead of the guy's tee. I created that sound of his club slicing through the air. I knew the bird would chirp right before the club hit the ball. I knew where his ball would go before he even hit it. But more than that, I knew that by the time this player got to hole 18 that he would win the entire championship. You know why? Not because he's a great golfer, but because the greatest who's ever played the game, my son Jesus, has already played the perfect game. And at the end of this guy's game, my son's going to hand him his scorecard with his name on it. And so it's as if, before this guy even hits golf ball number one, that he's already wearing the green jacket, he's already lifting the trophy. Because I'm going to invite him into the victory that I've already won. That's foreknowledge. Isn't that great? Doesn't that blow your mind? That's foreknowledge. And he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined us. Well, we see this predestination, we see this predetermined plan. We see this God's choosing all throughout creation. Think about Adam and Eve. God took initiative. It was God's idea to create them, and so he did that. He created Adam and Eve. God chose Noah. God chose Abraham. God chose Joseph. He chose Moses. He chose David. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. We even refer to the Jewish people as God's chosen people, right? But for some reason, we struggle with this idea, especially here in America, and I think I know why. You guys remember being in PE class in elementary school? They take you into the gym, they line you up on the wall, and they're going to divide the class up into two groups for dodgeball. And they pick the most athletic, popular kids to be team captains, and those kids look at all of us standing against the wall, 
And they pick the kids that are the fastest, the strongest, the most coordinated, the best at dodgeball first, and then you're left against the wall with me. Nobody wants us on the team. Why? Because we stink, let's be honest, all right? And it hurts our feelings. It's not fair. And I believe that we, we let those hurt feelings, that sense of unfairness, seep into our faith, and it causes us to formulate some false gospels that have really permeated our culture. These popular gospels that are out there are polluted. They're popular, but they're polluted. By the way, if a gospel message is popular in this wicked world, it's probably not biblical. And if a gospel message is biblical, it's probably not going to be popular. But I want to I point out some of these polluted gospels. One popular version, and we'll just kind of continue along this line of sports, if you don't mind, teaches us that salvation is like lining up all of the leaders of world religions on the wall. And you're the team captain, and you're going to look and see who's the best. And you're like, I don't like this guy, I kind of like parts of this guy, but Jesus, he's awesome. He's a great player. If anybody knows how to play the game, it's Jesus. He has a great track record, and I'm going to invite Jesus to be on Team Dave. Jesus, welcome to the team. I'm the team owner, I'm the team manager, I'm the coach, and let's be, let's be real, I'm also the quarterback. But you're my MVP, and I trust in your abilities, and you're going to help me win this game called life. And so, Jesus, it's fourth and 20. There's only seconds left in the game. I need you to do your thing. We need a Hail Mary. That's not the biblical gospel, but isn't it popular? Super popular. A second popular but polluted version of the gospel is we're lined up on the wall. Jesus picks us to be on his team, but he picks us because we're awesome. I mean, we have so much potential and power. We're probably going to be the best player anyone has ever seen, especially with Jesus' coaching. And so he selects us because we're awesome. We're going to be Jesus' MVP, and we're going to help him win the championship. He really needs us to come through. I mean, Christianity's in trouble in this world, and he needs my help. And I'm going to do my best, but Jesus, if you disappoint me, if you let me down, if you don't meet my expectations, and if other players on the team don't carry their weight, I'm out of here, man. And I'm going to become a free agent. That is not the biblical gospel. Let me tell you the biblical gospel. We're lined up on the wall. Jesus picks us. But it's not because we're great. In fact, we're the worst player in franchise history. We don't even know how to tie our spiritual shoes we bring nothing to his team yet because of his great love and his grace and his mercy, he invites us. And then when we say yes and we come, he says, hey, by the way, I've already secured the championship. The trophy is yours. Now let's grow together. Isn't that awesome? That is the biblical salvation. That is the predetermined plan of God in our predestination. That's the biblical gospel. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-30, he said, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is weak in the world. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ. Jesus himself said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, 
but I chose you, that you would go forth and bear fruit. Now, I encourage you not to dive down deep into these terms. There are two groups of Christians, Christians that focus pretty much only on these words and camp out there to the detriment of the rest of Scripture. There are other people that avoid these words altogether, and when they see them in the Bible, they, they, they don't even read it. They're like, that's confusing to me. Don't fall in either of those camps. It's there. We have to, we have to deal with it. And if you want to deal more with it, you go to Ephesians 1, and, and where you read, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. He predestined us for adoption to sonship. And so, so let's explore it, but don't live there. It's kind of like climbing the Himalayan mountains, you know? You get up to a certain height, and it starts to become hard to breathe. You get, uh, you get sickness, elevation sickness, because we're not meant to live up there. The Bible tells us that God's ways are so much higher than our ways. And there are things on this side of heaven we will never understand and comprehend. But it's nice to simply rest in the fact that God has a predetermined plan, isn't it? And so every now and then we get our head above the clouds, we look around and we're in awe of God's knowledge and his awesomeness and his great love and mercy, but then we have to come down and breathe a little bit, you know? That's why there's no housing subdivisions on the top of the Himalayas. We weren't, we weren't meant to live up there. So don't live up there in this idea of predestination, foreknowledge, election, choosing. Don't live up there, but man, it's so, so good to every now and then peek above the clouds and go, wow and then come back down. God had a predetermined plan. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. I heard somebody say last week, any good in me is all God, the rest is my fault. I love that statement. Any good in me is God, the rest, it's my fault. I don't deserve to be on this team. God doesn't need me, but in his great grace and love, he chose me. He predestined me. You might be thinking, Dave, I just don't understand all this predestination, foreknowledge, and election stuff. That's okay. You enjoy things you don't completely understand every single day. I enjoy my wife's cooking. I don't fully understand why it's so delicious, but it doesn't keep me from enjoying it. I enjoy technology. I don't completely understand technology, how it all works, but I really enjoy it. It's kind of creepy when you say seriously and Siri beeps and talks to you from across the room when your own kids don't listen to you when you're five feet from them. It's amazing. I don't fully understand it, but I sure do enjoy it. We do a lot of things we don't fully understand, but we enjoy them. It's like rooting for the Cowboys. I don't really understand why we do it, but it's enjoyable. By the way, regardless of what you've heard, the most important election of your lifetime is not coming November 3rd. The most important election of your lifetime happened before you were even born. God voted for you. Isn't that awesome? Rest in that. God voted for you. Not because you were the better candidate, not because you earned his vote, but because of his unconditional love and his great grace and mercy and the sacrifice of his son Jesus on the cross. So that's the predetermined plan that we see. Now we're going to look at a permanent pardon. In verse 3, it says that those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. So justification is the theological word, and it basically just means a permanent pardon. In justification, we're saved from the penalty of our sin. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. So that's the penalty for our sin. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so justification is the righteous judge of the universe looking at us, and because of our faith in Christ, saying, not guilty. 
But justification is more than just pardon. It's a permanent pardon. Justification is not only God forgiving us of our sin debt, but it's crediting to our account the righteousness of Jesus. Imagine you get home from church today and a gazillionaire calls you on the phone. That happens all the time, doesn't it? A gazillionaire. We don't even know how much money that is. Just a gazillionaire. It's a lot. He calls you, says, hey, are you in debt? Well, technically, yes. How much? You give him the number. There's a long pause. A little bit of shock associated. He says, well, I have good news for you. I'm paying your debt in full. Wouldn't that be a great afternoon? You are now debt-free. But I'm going to do more than pay off your debt because that represents your past. I'm going to tie your checking account to my checking account. I'm not only paying off your debt that you owe, I am crediting you with my wealth. Isn't that amazing? That's what God does to the believer when he trusts in Christ. He justifies us. It's a permanent pardon. A permanent pardon. We are made right with God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 10, 4 says, For Christ has already accomplished the purchase for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Look at your neighbor and say, You're all right. You're all right. Isn't that better, by the way, than saying you're all wrong? That's what we've been doing for the past couple of months. You're all wrong. You're all wrong. Let's say you're all right. If you're in Christ, you are right with God. Your sin debt is paid. You've been credited the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at us, instead of seeing us in our sin, he looks at Jesus and sees his righteousness. That's great news. If you're a follower of Jesus here today and you struggle with the sin of your past, you need to memorize Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are saved, if you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, you are right with God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This means if you're applying for eternity, that Jesus is your resume. Not your good works, not your best efforts. I wouldn't trust the best 15 minutes of my life to justify myself before God. I'm with Paul. Paul says, my righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God's holiness. But when you trust in Jesus, when you're saved and you're justified, your, your resume is his resume, Jesus, his life, not your life. In the school of heaven, Jesus has already earned your A. You're not working for it. You're working from it. It's because of what he's done. That's great. So we have a predetermined plan. We have a permanent pardon. And the third aspect of our great salvation is found in verse 28. Now we're going to go back up to verse 28, the famous verse. And we're going to see a purifying process. And theologians call this sanctification this famous passage says, and we know, not and we hope, but and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. That is a huge statement. All things will work together for good? 
for those who love God? How can we say that statement? That is a high tower of hope in this life. It's because of verse 29, what we just talked about. Verse 29 is the foundation. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It explains the beginning. And those he, whom he foreknew, he predestined, God voted for you, to be what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's the end of our salvation. That means everything in between that, all things that occur to us on that timeline can be worked together for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. That's why we can say we know that, because he started it, he'll finish it. So I guess everything in the middle, he's also in control of. That's a purifying process of sanctification. And justification frees us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification progressively frees us from the power of sin in our lives. It's not that when we trust in Jesus, we never sin anymore. You know that's not true. We still sin, we still fall. Why? Because we're living in fallen, sinful bodies on a sinful planet with sinful people. And when we cave into the flesh, we'll disappoint God and we'll sin. God has freed us from the penalty of sin, but the power and the presence of sin is still here. But the good news is that the Holy Spirit moves into our hearts the moment we're saved and he begins a purifying process where we yield more and more to him and less and less to sin. And progressively, he is freeing us from the power of sin in our lives. It works through the power of the Holy Spirit. If justification gets us out of hell, sanctification is getting the hell out of us. Can I say that in church? Right? The Holy Spirit starts to work in our life and gets that out of our life progressively, progressively. It's, an, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit acts in us, He works with us, and He ministers through us. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 talks about those who trusted in Jesus, and it says you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's, it's a guarantee. It says who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. That's us. Jesus purchased us with his blood. God gives us the guarantee of his Holy Spirit because he's good on his word. He said, I started it in you. I will finish in you. Here's the proof. I'm going to give you the person of the Holy Spirit. He's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to make you more like my son. He's going to conform you in to the image of of my son. It's a progressive purifying process. The Spirit guarantees our salvation. He guides us. He gifts us. He guards us. He glorifies God in us and through us. Sanctification is a purifying process that's a partnership of our redeemed will and his remarkable work in us. That's why Paul can say in Romans 12, present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. That's your part. Present your body to God. The Holy Spirit will help you. He will work in you, but you've got to work with Him. Can we not quench the Holy Spirit's work in our life? Absolutely. Many of you do it on Facebook for the world to see. But we can frustrate the Spirit, or we can work with the Spirit in our sanctification and yield our sinful flesh, sinful will, to His wonderful work. It's our reasonable service. Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, Imitate God in everything you do, following the example of Christ. Let's think about Jesus for a second. It's Sunday. We're supposed to, right? Think about Jesus, how he's depicted in the gospel, his three and a half years on the earth. How did he, how did he live? What did he say? What did he do? How did he treat other people? It's a pretty good example, wouldn't you say? Way up here. Now think about you. How do you live? What do you say? What do you do? What kind of example do you set? 
There's a big difference, right? The purifying process of sanctification is all that needs to be done in the middle. From the moment we're saved until we're finally conformed into the image of Christ. God is still working on me. How about you? I'm still working on love thy neighbor as thyself. Lesson number one. Still working on it. But by God's grace, the more we walk in his spirit and the less we walk in the flesh, we become more and more like Jesus. His fruits come through our life. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul said in Galatians 5.25, Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Submit to that purifying process. Not only does He work in us and with us, He works through us. He gives us gifts so that we can serve other people for the glory of God. A lot of you guys, during the COVID-19 quarantine, decided you were going to get into some shape, you know. That's it. I'm going to get into some shape. All I can do is walk, so I'm going to go walk, and I'm going to work out. And a lot of you look great. Way to go. Congratulations. But you learned in the process of getting in shape that you can't get in shape without a little pain and without a little resistance, you know. There's lifting weights. There's, there's pushing past you know, when, when you want to stop and you got to keep going, you got to keep walking, you got to keep running because without that pain, there's no progress. And that's a lot like our spiritual walk. This purifying process of sanctification, it doesn't say all things are good. It says all things work together for good. That means there might be some bad things, some hard things. So consider yourself in the gym with Jesus. He's going to allow you to strap on some struggles and carry some criticism and push up on some problems. Why? Because it's all part of him conforming you into the image of his son. He's chiseling you into his likeness. Sometimes that hurts, but the pain is worth it. It's worth it. A couple, couple months ago now, on a Wednesday night, we were up here for church, and my daughter, Danae, drives separately from us, and she's got a really old Honda Accord, you know. Thank God she's got it. But, you know, it has its first car quirks. Every now and then she has to use a screwdriver to get it out of park, and that's okay. It's okay. Uh, but she decided to go leave church and go home before we did one night, and it started just pouring down rain, just like a gully washer, man. And she called me because halfway home on Crowley Road, her windshield wipers stopped working. They stopped wiping. And she could not see. She was blinded. It was dark, and the lights were glaring, and so she just pulled over, and then she called me. Of course, my heart stopped because... If you have a teenager, they never call you. They always text you if there's a call, something's really wrong. So after I got, my, got over my initial fear, found out what was going on, we said, well, we'll just, just stay right there, we'll come. And so we pulled up behind her, and it was still pouring rain. And I said, let's swap. You jump in the van, I'll jump in your car, and I'll drive your car home. That was a dumb decision. Can I just tell you? What made me think that if she could not see the road through the windshield and the rain, that I could with my older eyes. You know, Anyway. I got in there, I was trying to be the dad, you know, I got to get this car home, got to get home. And so I pulled out, and the lights were on, and I just could not see the road. The, wind, the, the windshield was just covered with rain. It was a blur. I was straining my eyes, trying to look as hard as I could through the blur of the water on the windshield to the lines, and whoever paints those lines, God bless you, thank you, you saved lives that night. But I was looking at the lines, reflecting from the headlights, and I was just thinking, I just got to get home, I just got to get home, I just got to get home. 
And isn't that like life when we go through trials and hardships, when we're pushing up on problems and it gets blurry because of our circumstances? We strain our eyes and we look past the blur of the pain and we stay on the straight and narrow and we say, I'm just gonna get home because I know that one day all of this will be gone and God will make all things new. Until then, I've got to push through the blur of the pain. Some of you guys are in that right now. And I'm telling you, you've got to push through the blur. God's promise to you is all things, all things will work together for your ultimate good, for his ultimate glory. Keep submitting to the purifying process of sanctification. So far we've learned about God's predetermined plan, a permanent pardon for us, a purifying process. The fourth aspect of our great salvation is a perfect product. The end result of our great salvation is our glorification. That's the theological word. And it means that we are finally conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect product that awaits all of us. It's your future today, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you will be perfect like him. You're not perfect now. Neither am I. We're all in process. But one day we'll be perfect like Jesus. Our earthly bodies will be transformed and made like his glorious body. We spend a lot of our lives staring at our physical bodies in the mirror. Some of you spend too much time doing that. You need to stop doing that. It gets depressing. Trust me. There are, there are days where I think that during the night as I slept, someone snuck into my bathroom and replaced my regular mirror with like a circus fun mirror. You know, the kind that twists and distorts your body. I wake up and I look at myself and I'm like, whoa, when did that happen? It's called aging. You know, we live on a fallen planet, right? In fallen bodies. But one day, God will fix all of it. All your impurities, all of your insufficiencies, he'll glorify you in a moment. Comedian Mark Lowry used to joke about this. He said, hey, I believe that one day God's going to make me like Jesus. He's going to perfect this body. So why would I go through all the pain and suffering of working out and having a good diet just so I can look good in the casket? God's going to glorify me anyway, right? I'd rather die with a Big Mac in my hand and a smile on my face because God's going to look at me and say, nice try, boom, glorified. He's going to perfect me. I don't necessarily agree with Mark Lowry's philosophy. I think we should take care of our bodies. The Bible teaches that it's profitable to do that. You should take care of your health for your family and for your, so that you feel better and for the glory of God. But taking care of yourself spiritually is much more important because it'll last forever. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, Jesus, we shall be like Him. One day we're going to be perfect, just like the Son of God. Heaven is going to be a wonderful place. Pastor Jerry Vine says, In heaven there will be rest without boredom, service without exhaustion, and worship without distraction. It's going to be perfect. The only imperfections that exist in heaven are the scars in the hands and feet and side of Jesus. And the only reason is that they're there is because of his great love for us. The reminders of his great love and sacrifice for us. Everything else, perfection. Well, finally this morning, I want us to look at that last section of Scripture, verses 31 through 39, because in this, sec in this section of Scripture, Professor Paul gives us this big application to all of these truths 
about our great salvation. I call it his positive profession. He says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? I love that. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, no, in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that incredible? That's what it means to have our great salvation. No separation predestination, justification, sanctification, glorification. It all means no separation from God. Nothing, nothing in 2020 that's happened, is happening now, or will happen, will ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you receive his great salvation, we have a sovereign Savior. He has designed us in creation. He drew us to Salvation. He directs and he develops us in sanctification and he has destined each and every one of us for perfection. You have been selected to be perfected. Think about it. That is great. One last thing I want you to notice from this passage. Look at all the those is. Can I say that? Those is in your text. Those who love God, those whom he foreknew, those whom he predestined, those whom he called, he justified the same those, he is glorifying the same those. The same those he foreknows or the same those he calls or the same those he justifies, the same those he's sanctifying, the same those he will glorify. And so I guess you could say those he foreknows, he saves and grows until they glows. That's our great salvation. That's it. We don't, we don't have to wrestle with it. We don't have to debate it. We don't have to get all confused about it. Just rest in that. Rest in it. He invited us into victory. The hymn writer said, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon, there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. If you're here this morning or watching online and you've never experienced this great salvation, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. You might say, Dave, this all sounds good, but how do I know if I've been predestined? How do I know if God has a predetermined plan for my life. How do I know if God voted for me? The Bible answers your question in John 3, 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him 
will not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes. Romans 10, 13 says, Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do you know? Are you whoever that believes? Are you whoever that's ready to call on the name of Jesus? Let's stand together this morning. If you're here this morning, you've never experienced this great salvation. It's there waiting for you. If you're thinking, I don't deserve this, there's no way I can earn it, you are in the perfect place. Perfect place, because being saved is the realization that all of us are sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God, but God gave this precious gift in His Son. He lived the life we could never live. He died on the cross, shedding His righteous blood for our sinful lives, so that if we just turn from our sin and trust in Him, we would be saved the Bible says if you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, that he died for you, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, you'll be saved. It's a matter of believing. It's a matter of calling. I'm going to encourage you to do that today.